This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to our program today, and thank you for joining us. I'm Jeremiah Jacques. Over the weekend, Charles III was crowned King of the United Kingdom during an elaborate ceremony in London. This was Britain's first coronation since 1953, and there are many notable takeaways, including the fact that this was a major missed opportunity, which we'll hear about in our first segment of the show today in a report by thetrumpet.com's assistant managing editor, Mr. Richard Palmer. The second segment will take a look at China's intensifying efforts to breathe fire on the transatlantic alliance. The Chinese Communist Party wants to dominate global affairs, and they understand that to have the space to do that, Europe must be pulled out of its alliance with America. So Communist Party leaders are working to draw the Europeans away from their historic ally and over to their dictatorial regime. And what's most alarming is that some in the upper echelons of Europe are succumbing to China's advances. In fact, some European elites have long hoped and prepared for just such a shift. Our third segment today relates to the second. It's about the German government worrying that Donald J. Trump could soon be back in power in the United States. The Germans, as allies of America, are deeply concerned over this possibility and are actively preparing for it. We'll learn all about this in a report from trumpet writer Josue Michels. And our last word today is about this day in history, May 10th, back in 1940, when a new man became the political leader of the United Kingdom. And he played a major role in saving the world from being overcome by Nazi darkness. This man's approach to aggressors and his offensive warfare carries lessons for each of us and the way that we confront personal problems. So we'll take a look at that at the end of today's episode. And we'll begin today with this look at the May 6th coronation ceremony in this report by Mr. Richard Palmer. The English-speaking world is thoroughly ignorant of the Bible and anything religious. The vast majority rarely, if ever, set foot in a church service, and society is embracing extremes like transgenderism that are far removed from what the Bible teaches. Yet on Saturday, 20 million people in the UK and millions more around the world tuned in for a service rooted in the Bible. The coronation of King Charles III, with its roots in the Bible, contains an inspiring message for the world. The 1953 Plain Truth wrote that God originally ordained the coronation ceremony, the blowing of trumpets, the music, the anointing, and the crowning. It talked about how many of the aspects in there are not biblical, but it said the basis for the entire ceremony is still as it was in the days of old for the kings of Israel. Consider the message that was beamed around the world. The king was handed a Bible as he was told, Sir, to keep you ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, receive this book, the most valuable thing this world has to offer. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. This royal law was central to the whole ceremony. 
But most Christian denominations teach that the law is done away with. But King Charles was asked as part of his coronation oath, Will you to your power cause law and justice in mercy to be executed in all your judgments? And will you to the utmost of your power maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? After he was crowned and acclaimed by all present, the choir sang, Be strong and of a good courage. Keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. As Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry explained in his Friday article, so much of this ceremony comes from Solomon's coronation in 1 Kings chapter 1. Why sing about the long dead, Zadok the priest, when a British king is crowned? Why shout, God save the king, long live the king, just as they did 3,000 years ago? Herbert W. Armstrong proved in his free book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy, that the royal family in Great Britain descends from Israel's King David, as part of God's promise of an eternal line to the righteous ruler. Why make such a remarkable promise? Well, Second Chronicles 21 and verse 7 says to give him a light and to his sons forever. David's throne is to be a light to the world. Think about what a light that coronation could have been, the whole world tuning into this message from God. But there may have been some wonderful words in that coronation, but no light is really shining from that throne in Britain because of the deeds of those sitting on it. The coronation told the world that the Bible is the most valuable thing in the world. The royal family is not sending that message by the way they live their lives. Camilla was crowned queen during the ceremony, a divorcee with whom King Charles had an adulterous affair. They're not using the Bible to regulate their lives. Even the Church of England is increasingly departing from the Bible. This was the first time female bishops were involved in the coronation of a king. The Church of England is moving towards accepting homosexual, quote, marriage, asking God's blessing on same-sex couples in church. The church could split as African members of the Anglican Communion are more faithful to what is in the Bible than those in the UK. The next day, King Charles celebrated his coronation with Windsor Castle's first pop concert. Celebrities from Kermit the Frog to Tom Cruise sent their congratulations. Katy Perry, a pop star turned LGBT advocate, was one of the most famous performers. And during her performance, momentarily, Windsor Castle was lit up with the rainbow. Perry has closer ties to the king than most. In 2020, she was appointed by then Prince Charles to be the new ambassador of the British Asian, Asian Trust, despite being neither British nor Asian. And this isn't simply about maintaining a royal decorum or avoiding being too trendy. The pop music industry has pushed a huge amount of immorality on the world. And then the newly crowned king is inviting pop stars into Windsor Castle and broadcasting them around the world. The royal family is embracing the sins of the world rather than being an example of God's law. Another innovation in this coronation was the inclusion of other religions. At the end of the ceremony, representatives from Britain's faith communities came forward to greet the king, proclaiming, we unite with people of all faiths and beliefs in thanksgiving and in service with you for the common good. The ceremony was peppered with changes to emphasize the role of other religions. Before asking the king to take his oath, the Archbishop of Canterbury issued a, a bit of a disclaimer. Your Majesty, the church established by law whose settlement you will swear to maintain is committed to the true profession of the gospel. And in so doing, we'll seek to foster an environment in which people of all faiths and beliefs may live freely. The king added a new prayer to the ceremony where he asked, Grant that I may be a blessing to all your children of every faith and conviction, that together we may discover the ways of gentleness. 
In a world deceived and cut off from God, there is a lot to be said for religious freedom. It allows God's church to operate after all. But this was clearly a dose of multiculturalism injected into the coronation ceremony. Multiculturalism has watered down Britain's traditions. Its emphasis on what divides rather than what unites has left the nation weaker. Most notable was the role the Catholic Church played. This was arguably the most Catholic coronation for nearly 500 years. The procession was led into Westminster Abbey by what are claimed to be fragments of the true cross gifted by the Pope. The Catholic News Agency writes that given the relationship between the British Crown and the Catholic Church has been rocky in the ages past, Charles's decision to place the papal gift at the forefront of his coronation ceremonies is significant. The Gloria sung in the coronation was performed in Latin in what may have been the first time Latin has been sung in a coronation since Elizabeth I in 1559, outside the traditional Latin greeting of the king. Cardinal Vincent Nichols blessed King Charles, the first time a Catholic archbishop has taken part in a coronation in over 400 years. The Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal Pietro Parolin, also attended, representing Pope Francis. The last coronation attended by a cardinal was probably that of Mary I in 1553, and she went on to be known as Bloody Mary because of her killing of Protestants. The Archdiocese in Westminster noted that at Queen Elizabeth II's coronation in 1953, it would not have been permitted for any Catholic to enter a Protestant church, let alone to take part in a coronation service. The Queen herself has had a lot to do with that change as she drew closer to the Catholic Church. But the inclusion of these Catholics contrasted with other parts of the coronation ceremony specifically designed to exclude Catholics from sitting on that throne. Most regard these parts of the ceremony, such as the coronation oath, as outdated prejudice. Once again, there is a lot that may look good at this kind of reconciliation of old divisions. But the Catholic Church has a long history of opposition to England's throne. In 1570, Pope Pius V declared that he had deprived Queen Elizabeth of her pretended title, as well as of all lordship, dignity and privilege. Catholic terrorists tried to assassinate her successor, James I, along with all of Britain's leadership. On Friday, Mr. Flurry wrote, Queen Elizabeth also swore to maintain Britain's religion. This she did not do. That's not to say that the Protestant Reformed religion is the one true religion, but to the extent that it followed the Bible, Britain was blessed for maintaining it. Today, however, Britain is a morass of secularism, dangerous multicultural religious confusion, and submission to the religion of Europe that it once strongly opposed. The Queen has made unprecedented moves to reconcile with the Vatican, visiting Pope John Paul II in Rome, hosting his visit to Britain in 1982, the first Pope to do so since the Reformation, allowing him to hold joint services with the Archbishop of Canterbury and appointing a Roman Catholic as her chaplain. There is a spiritual reason for this ancient enmity from Rome. The vast majority of Catholics are sincere people and God has a plan to save them and to bring them into his family. But the throne in the Vatican is in direct opposition to the throne of David. God established his throne to be a light and he promised that his son would return to sit on that throne in Luke 1 verses 31 to 32. But the Vatican claims that it has God's throne on earth. When the Archbishop of Canterbury kissed the Pope's ring, Mr. Flurry wrote that he was putting the Pope's throne ahead of God's throne. Bible prophecy says that a Catholic-led power is rising in Europe. Britain's royal family is soon going to regret drawing close to such a power. God says he is allowing this power to rise up to correct a hypocritical nation in Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 6. 
This is what we really saw on display this weekend, a nation that puts the Bible up in front of the world, tells the world that it is the most valuable thing that this world affords, and then entirely ignores it. Few in Britain take the Bible seriously, yet it contains the only answers to mankind's big questions, an instruction on how to live a happy life, something that man has searched for in vain. Yet obviously it's going to take some pretty dramatic events before most are willing to listen. God is raising up this European power to correct Britain and the United States and ultimately bring the whole world to know God. In the meantime, the world still needs a light now that the throne in Britain is no longer providing one. To allow a light to continue to shine, God has made a change in the way he is working with that throne. And as a result of that change, Mr. Flurry wrote that we would see a rapid decline in Britain's royal family. That decline has been on display for several years now, but God still has a plan to return the world to him and to have that light go out. To learn more about it, read Mr. Flurry's free book, The New Throne of David. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Europe should take control of its own destiny. That was the assertion of the Global Times, a mouthpiece for the Chinese Communist Party, in an article published in early April. It was published just days before French President Emmanuel Macron, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, and other high-level European leaders visited China. The article continued, If the EU wants to maximize its own interests, it should think more of pragmatic interests in cooperation with China, rather than having another major power dominate the agenda. End quote. When this Chinese Communist Party statement says another major power, that is a clear reference to the United States. So this statement was basically an open declaration that the Chinese are determined to convince the Europeans to start looking east instead of west, to start looking toward China instead of the U.S. Chinese leader Xi Jinping understands that as long as the European nations remain aligned with America, China will struggle to achieve both its immediate goal of conquering Taiwan and its long-term goal of dominating the world. The phrasing of this long-term goal may sound hyperbolic, but both policy papers and the actions of the Chinese Communist Party in recent years make it inescapably clear. Even the name that China calls itself, Zhang Gao, means Middle Kingdom, connoting that China is not only the geographic middle of the world, in the minds of the Chinese leaders, but it should also be the center of its economics, the center of its culture, and the center of its government. This Sinocentrist kind of worldview actually dates back centuries, but it's been making a major comeback under Chairman Xi, and he understands that to achieve it, to really make China the center of the world, Europe must first be pulled out of its alliance with America. So she is working furiously to draw the Europeans away from their historic ally and over to the side of his dictatorial regime. And what's most alarming is that some in the upper echelons of Europe's leadership are ignoring history and winking at the dark heart of the Chinese Communist Party, and they are succumbing 
to Xi Jinping's advances. In fact, some European elites have long hoped and prepared for just such a shift. Xi Jinping gave the French president the full red carpet treatment in Beijing's Great Hall of the People. He hailed him with a military parade in Tiananmen Square, and he shared a lavish tea ceremony with him in Gangzhou. Altogether, Xi Jinping spent about six hours personally with Macron. During the flight back to Paris on April 9th, aboard the French presidential plane, Macron revealed increased eagerness to realign European politics. He said, The worst thing would be to think that we Europeans must become followers and take our cue from the U.S. agenda. He added that Europe needs, quote, strategic autonomy. And the clear way to achieve that is to replace U.S. partnerships with Chinese ones. That's the implication. In many ways, Europe is actually the party in this dynamic that you could think of as the Middle Kingdom. You know, it lies in between the United States and China in terms of geography and also world trade. Now, of course, Europe has its own historical and, and cultural identity, but now it has two strong alternatives pulling it in opposite directions. One power is democratic and the other is dictatorial. Macron and other European leaders, they often strive to portray themselves as, you know, these champions of democracy and human rights and international labor standards. The French claim to stand for the three pillars of their national motto, liberté, égalité, fraternité. But Macron is showing that he is willing to overlook the fact that the Chinese Communist Party is made up of a gang of unelected Marxist thieves. And he's willing to overlook the fact that Xi Jinping is a dictator for life who is committing genocide against China's Uyghurs, and he's enriching his party via slave labor, and he's supporting Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. The French president is willing to ignore all of this, and he also pointedly avoids criticism of China's COVID obstruction, reckless domineering in the South China Sea, illegal crackdown on Hong Kong, global police stations, brazen espionage, predatory loans to poor nations, its wolf warrior diplomacy, systematic theft of intellectual property, abysmal human rights record, and its active preparations to invade the free democratic island nation of Taiwan. Macron is ignoring all of this. He's turning a blind eye to all of this. Why would the president of France ignore all of this egregious tyranny? Actually, Macron himself gave the answer in that same interview during the plane ride back to Paris. Europe's goal, he said, is to become, quote, a third superpower. At present, Macron and other European elites with superpower ambitions, they feel tightly constrained by America. For them, it has outlived its usefulness. But they calculate that with China's blessing, they can pull free of Washington, and they can give Europe its rightful place on the global stage as a political, economic, and military juggernaut. So to win the blessing of the Chinese dragon, many European elites, such as Macron, turn a blind eye to the numerous manifestations of the Chinese Communist Party's malevolence. In their intensifying disdain for the U.S. system, they essentially cheer for the predatory Asian dictatorship, and they make plain that they will not stand in the way of China's dark ambitions. 
Macron's recent talks with Xi are reminiscent of those he held with Russian President Vladimir Putin, as Russia was amassing troops around Ukraine in 2021 and early 2022. At that time, Macron at least gave the impression that he sought to prevent a war. But now, though, he appears only interested in eroding U.S. influence and empowering China. This was made painfully clear by the green light that Macron gave to Xi to basically invade Taiwan without European intervention. He said, quote, Europeans cannot resolve the crisis in Ukraine. So how can we credibly say on Taiwan, watch out, if you do something wrong, we'll be there. And then he added, if you really want to increase tensions, that's the way you do it, end quote. Such an illogical and geopolitically naive statement would have sounded in Xi Jinping's ears like exhilarating war drums. And that's at least partly what Macron intended. He understands that European involvement could shred tens of billions of dollars worth of Europe-China trade deals. More sinisterly, he also knows that a successful Chinese takeover of Taiwan would be a devastating blow to the image and influence of the island nation's main security ally, the United States. If America already staggering after debacles like Afghanistan, sustains many more blows like these. It'll retreat from diplomacy even further, Macron calculates. And that could create the space necessary for Europe to become the unrestrained superpower that leaders like Macron yearn for it to be. This French display of blatant anti-Americanism, it really should be a wake-up call to Washington. And even more alarming is that Europe's main economic powerhouse, Germany, shares in the sentiment. In fact, if it weren't for German backing, French leaders such as Macron wouldn't dare to speak against the U.S. as they do. Now, it is true that four days after Macron returned to the Elysee Palace in Paris, German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock took her turn visiting China. And in press conferences, she, she really took what sounded like a saner and a more dignified stance than Macron had. She voiced concern over the Chinese Communist Party's human rights violations. And she also condemned China's military advances toward Taiwan. So to many onlookers, her visits seemed to provide reassurance that Europe still stands on the side of freedom and Western values and the U.S.-led global order. But the cold truth is that Europe is still trying to have it both ways. And many German elites share Macron's goal of ending the U.S.-dominated era and making Europe an unchained geopolitical colossus. And toward this end, while America works to decrease economic dependence on an increasingly lawless and aggressive China, the Germans are increasing Germany-China trade ties. There is often talk in Germany of working to reduce dependence on China, but at the same time, Germans see the massive Chinese market as the future for German industry. China has been Germany's largest trading partner for seven consecutive years now, and the two sides aim to just further build that relationship. So much of this is happening not despite the fact that it pushes the U.S. into what you could call the lonely corner of the geopolitical triangle, but because of that fact. The Germans understand that to make Europe the geopolitical superpower that they envision, they need to tap more deeply into the Chinese market. 
Germany's green agenda makes closer cooperation with China even more urgent. You know, it's China that controls the production of most of the cobalt, lithium, and rare earth elements that are critical for Germany's transition to clean energy. And that's becoming more and more of a priority for the Germans. So all of that will make Germany far more dependent on China. And then at the same time, China's vaunted Belt and Road Initiative is building all manner of infrastructure along the thousands of miles between Beijing and European capitals. The purpose of all of these highways and rail networks and bridges and ports is to reduce transportation costs and expand trade volumes. And so China has invested a trillion dollars so far toward that end. Several EU countries have signed on, including the Czech Republic, Greece, Hungary, Italy, Poland, and Portugal. And then Germany, while it's not a direct part of this initiative, it is allowing China greater inroads into its territory. Last year, a state-run Chinese firm was allowed to purchase a 24.9% stake in a container terminal at Hamburg, which is Germany's largest port. So these are incredibly significant infrastructure moves, and all of this infrastructure for ever greater trade between China and Europe continues to be laid. These trends prompted the New York Times to headline on April 12th. As the US tries to isolate China, German companies move closer. The article calls particular attention to German chemical behemoth, BASF, and car maker Volkswagen. Both of these German mega firms have shifted into overdrive to increase both their already vast manufacturing operations in China and their sales to China's 1.4 billion strong market. German companies such as BMW, Mercedes-Benz, Siemens, Deutsche Telekom, Allianz, Daimler, and Eon are all on the same basic path. They're all ramping up their trade ties with China, increasing operations and trying to tap more deeply into that vast marketplace. Ola Kalinius, the CEO of Mercedes-Benz, told Build on May 1st that reducing trade ties with China would be, quote, unthinkable for almost all of German industry, end quote. So this is a stark contrast with America. Instead of following the U.S.'s lead and working to move away from China, Germany is taking exactly the opposite path. And the reason isn't really that the German economy can't survive without China, but rather that China gives Germany a huge opportunity for growth. And growth, the Germans understand, is vital to their goal of making Europe the third superpower. Another huge part of this story is about the U.S. dollar, the greenback. Leaders of nations such as China and Russia have long sought to bypass the U.S. dollar in international trade. They no longer want it to be the main reserve currency or the main currency of trade, especially after seeing the dollar weaponized against Russia to punish it for its war against Ukraine. These nations are trying everything they can to get rid of the dollar. And they are optimistic that they may be able to very soon do it. The Global Times wrote on April 26th, quote, Facts have proven that the hegemony of the U.S. dollar can be broken, end quote. But the facts, of course, also show that the dominance of U.S. markets, along with just 
you know, macroeconomic inertia would make this a tall order, especially if the plan is for the Chinese currency to take the dollar's place. The U.S. dollar's share of global payment transactions in January, according to the SWIFT banking system, stood at about 45% of the total. Well ahead of any other currency, China's renminbi was in eighth place with just 1.3%. Meanwhile, the dollar still dominates currency reserves held by the world's central banks. The dollar constituted about 60% of the total in the most recent data, and the renminbi is fifth with just 3% of the total. So, you know, there's no question that China is an economic heavyweight, but since the Chinese Communist Party manipulates the nation's currency with a heavy hand, Finance ministers in other countries look upon the renminbi with a jaundiced eye. And Chinese leaders know this, and they understand that if they end up in a trade war with the United States, they'll need an accomplice who wields a currency that has far more international confidence. And the euro fits that bill. In global payments, the euro came in second place in January, with an impressive 33% of the total. And in currency reserves held by central banks, the euro again takes second with about 20%. So for China, having Europe as a major trade partner is more than just something that's vital to its export-driven economy. It's also crucial for China's broader geopolitical goal of pushing the U.S. dollar out of trade. And many Europeans are preparing to assist with this Chinese push. As Macron's plane flew, perhaps somewhere over Central Asia, on its way back to Paris, he said he agreed with Xi Jinping that Europe must fight against what he called the extraterritoriality of the U.S. dollar. So China and Russia are leading the global push for a de-dollarized world. Both of them seek to be able to invade their neighbors and expand their territory without facing any kind of dollar-based sanctions, such as those that are currently bedeviling Russia's economy. When the two trade with each other, it's now mainly in the renminbi. And they're imploring other nations to follow their example. Argentina, Brazil, India, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Singapore. All of these countries are divesting from the dollar. So far, all of these efforts have only amounted to minor vexations, really, for the dollar. But once more Europeans buy into the vision of such leaders as Macron, and once they join in the Chinese and Russian rejection of the dollar's extraterritoriality, then the greenback's days will be numbered. It may seem somewhat surprising to see China pulling Europe away from its alliance with the United States, and maybe even more so to see the Europeans welcoming this shift. But this is actually a development that we should have been expecting in light of Bible prophecy. Some 2,700 years ago, God inspired the prophet Isaiah to write about a staggeringly powerful multinational trade bloc that would emerge in our modern times. And he specified who the main members of this bloc would be. In Isaiah 23 verse 1, he calls one of the main players Chittim. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Fleury explains the meaning of this name in his book, Isaiah's End Time Vision. He writes, Kittim is synonymous with the Chittim of Isaiah's prophecy. And after their migration through Central Asia, the Kittim made their appearance in modern-day Northeast China and Mongolia. End quote. So this name, Chittim, refers mainly to modern China. And then Isaiah also says that a power called Tyre, 
will be a major member of this trade alliance. Here's Mr. Fleury's explanation of that one. The spiritual center of the modern European Holy Roman Empire is called Babylon in your Bible. But here in Isaiah 23, the Bible refers to Tyre and its allies as the commercial center of this European power, end quote. So this one refers to Europe. And then Isaiah 23, along with a sister passage in Ezekiel 27, shows that Russia and other Asian powers will also join in this globe-girdling economic block. Together, this alliance of European and Asian countries will seize control of global trade in the near future. And passages such as Deuteronomy 28.52 show that they will use that control to suffocate America and some of its allies. Mr. Fleury writes, The Bible contains many prophecies of that European power attacking America. When the attack occurs, there will be no help or sympathy from Asia. In fact, Russia, China, and Japan will enter into a brief alliance with Europe. All of them are going to besiege America, Britain, and the Jewish nation. This is why Isaiah's prophecy of an end-time mart of nations that includes both European and Asian powers is so intriguing, and why the trend of collusion between these two great economic blocks is worth watching." End quote. So these geopolitical shifts that we're now witnessing in China and Europe, they, they go beyond economic considerations. It's all leading to the rise of two mighty superpowers who are dead set on ending the era of American-led order. China and Russia are increasingly belligerent, and they're uniting Asia with trade and force, and then at the same time you have Germany building a European economic powerhouse with the ambition of making it what Macron called a third superpower with an EU military. Many around the globe today are alarmed by Russia's war on Ukraine and China's increasingly clear plan to conquer Taiwan, but few recognize that the mighty United States could be similarly brutalized. These prophecies, though, they show what lies ahead for America, and in light of them, we should not be surprised to see Europeans willing to overlook the Chinese Communist Party's darkness in order to partner more closely with Europe. We should actually expect China-Europe ties to keep on growing stronger. The prophecies make plain that these trends will culminate in a time of extreme calamity and heavy darkness, but that's not the end of the story. The scriptures also show that the age of darkness will be brief, and it'll be overcome by light. At that time, a foundationally different chapter of history will begin, far brighter than any humankind has ever experienced. The creator of man will return to earth and decisively end our lawlessness, rebellion, tyranny, self-destruction, human rights abuses, genocide, oppression, coveting, greed, and other evils. He will usher in an age of light and peace for the peoples of China, Europe, America, and the entire world. Thank God, Mr. Fleury writes, that there is great news beyond the bad news. This is Trumpet Hour. 
The leaders of Germany are keeping an eye on the political situation in the United States, and they're deeply concerned that Donald Trump, who did a great deal of damage to America's alliances during his presidency, could soon be back in power. The Germans are deeply concerned over this possibility and all of the chaos that they believe it could bring, and they are actively preparing for it, as we will hear about now in this report from trumpet writer Josue Michels. Next year, there will be a presidential election in the United States. There's growing concern in the German government about Donald Trump's re-election. That was a quote from Germany's Tagesschau from May 3rd. The German government's concern about a democratic process in one of its closest allies is in itself concerning. But even more concerning is how Germany is preparing for President Trump's return to power. From the day Donald Trump began campaigning in 2016, he received negative press in Germany. When he was re-elected, media outlets and politicians were raving mad. They called him erratic, irresponsible and harmful to the transatlantic relationship. In 2017, Der Spiegel and Stern, Germany's two leading magazines, sharply condemned President Trump. Der Spiegel masked him in their magazine as a KKK supporter, while Stern depicted him as America's Adolf Hitler. But their criticism is even worse now. The transatlantic coordinator for the German government said, quote, Trump would be a greater challenge for Germany Europe and the world in a possible second term than his first term. He would likely rule even more unrestrained, unpredictable and defiant." End of quote. Again, that's from the transatlantic coordinator. You would expect him to be a bit more optimistic. Here's another statement from Wolfgang Ischinger, former German ambassador to the United States. Quote, if Trump were really history, Many in Europe would have fewer sleepless nights, but the fundamental fear Trump provoked six years ago would not disappear." End of quote. Noah Barkin, a senior advisor who focuses on Europe-China relations, wrote on Twitter, quote, Europe's fear of a return to Trump or a victory of a mini-Trump is shaping policy more than one might think. In the German Chancellery and Elysee Palace, it is a reason and excuse to try to remain on the best possible terms with China. End of quote. It takes a mere casual read through German newspapers these days to sense the rising hatred Germany has for its former friend, America. A 2017 study even showed that the German media reports were more negative about President Trump than other countries. Reports from one of Germany's public broadcasters were considered 98% negative. Just a few decades ago, Germany was humbled and subordinate to the Western alliances. Times have dramatically changed. Germany celebrated when the American media declared Joe Biden the winner of the 2020 US election despite evidence of a stolen election, the same people who sheared for this undemocratic 
takeover of the White House fear that the American people might vote for Trump. German politicians are not interested in a relationship that benefits both sides. Seeing that Mr. Trump may end America's generous support for the continent, they are pushing toward independence and heading for a closer alliance with China. Spiegel Online wrote, It is possible that the next US president will again be Donald Trump. Berlin and Brussels are preparing for a horror scenario. NATO and Ukraine would be in danger. End of quote. Today's headlines show how quickly Germany is ready to betray its relationship with America. But even more astonishing is that this mood change in Germany was prophesied in your Bible more than 2000 years ago. Although the two nations may continue to cooperate for a short time, Germany's hatred toward Trump and the people voting for him will soon lead it to betray its former friend. But while all this is happening, most people in America have no idea what Germany is up to. They continue to believe that Germany is the US's ally against Russia and China. But at the same time, Germany is drawing closer to those very nations, even as they are becoming more and more aggressive. This false trust in Germany has also been prophesied. Ezekiel 23 verse 9 reads, We have delivered her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians upon whom she doted. Just like Israel trusted its allies anciently more than God, so it is today with the modern descendants of Israel, primarily the US and Britain and the little Jewish nation in the Middle East called Israel. For this reason, God prophesied to punish them the same way he did ancient Israel. On the subhead German double cross, trumpet editor-in-chief Jeff Louis writes the following in his book Ezekiel the Antime Prophet. Ezekiel 23 explains this heinous double cross. Israel is represented by Ahola and Judah, separated from Israel at the time, is Aholibah. Verse 4. Israel, mainly the US and Britain and Judah, called Israel today, become lovers of the Assyrians, today's Germans. God then delivers Israel and Judah into the hands of the Germans. End of quote. Because modern day Israel, primarily the US and UK, trusts Assyria more than it trusts God, God will allow its punishment to come by way of its lovers. Concerning a parallel prophecy in Hosea, Mr. Fluey notes that Britain and America's punishment will not come through their primary rivals such as Russia and China, but much rather through their lovers such as Germany. Quote, Britain and America are increasingly aligning themselves with Germany, modern Syria, and it will be to our downfall because God is going to bring it about. There will be no more mirth or happiness in our lands. Isaiah 10.5 refers to Germany as the rod of God's anger and the staff of his indignation. God is angry with the sins that Israel is committing and he is sending punishment." End of quote. The trumpet and its predecessor, 
the plain truth, have repeatedly warned about this coming betrayal, but America and Britain refuse to repent and turn to God. Soon they will face the punishment. But Bible prophecy does not end there. The Bible also shows that a German-led Europe will be the last superpower to rule this world. Mankind will soon learn that neither President Trump nor Germany is able to solve mankind's problems. The prophecy in Daniel 2 is clear. All man's attempts to rule this world will come to an end at the second coming of Jesus Christ, who will establish an everlasting kingdom and bring mankind's long-desired peace. In God's coming kingdom, America and Germany will learn to live in close cooperation and all hatred will be gone. The Bible is full of wonderful prophecies that speak of the coming reconciliation between Germany and Israel. Isaiah 19 prophesies of a future cooperation between Assyria, Israel and Egypt. Isaiah 35 describes this coming world in verses 5 to 7. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. From the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert, and the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of dragons, where each lay, shall be grass with reeds and rushes. End of quote. Concerning these verses, Mr. Fleury writes in Isaiah's End Time Vision, For in the parched ground shall become a pool, the Hebrew could read, the mirage shall become a real lake. We have seen the sun's rays refracted on the glowing desert sands at midday. It gives the appearance of a lake. In the near future, those desert mirages will be replaced by real lakes. That mirage is only a type of the illusions that fill this world. Men see mirages in marriage, race, relations, education, religion, and peace endeavors. They see hope that later proves to be dreadfully disappointing mirage. Soon all of those mirages will become reality, real successes, and fulfillment. End of quote. Today's German-American friendship is one of those mirages. It looks beautiful and full of hope, but is merely an illusion. Yet Bible prophecies show us a glimpse of what it will be like once this illusion becomes reality. We read in Isaiah 19, verse 23 to 25, In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria. And the Egyptians shall serve the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third, with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. The modern descendants of Assyria and the modern descendants of ancient Israel are about to learn to live in true harmony and peace. To understand these marvelous prophecies beyond the horrors ahead, 
Request your free copy of Isaiah's End Time Vision. It's time for today's Last Word. Today is May 10th, and on this day back in 1940, Mr. Winston Churchill succeeded Neville Chamberlain to become the Prime Minister of Great Britain. This was in the early months of World War II, and Churchill's leadership contrasted sharply with that of his predecessor. Chamberlain had essentially yawned a few years earlier when Adolf Hitler's Germany entered the demilitarized Rhineland zone. That was a clear violation of the Versailles Treaty, but Chamberlain viewed it as kind of an isolated event, so he didn't worry about it. And then two years later, in March of 1938, Hitler absorbed Austria into his empire. And again, Chamberlain, and not just him, but many in positions of leadership in Britain and around Europe, they stood idly by. They hoped that that would be the end of Nazi Germany's expansionism. Next came September of 1938, when Chamberlain and the leadership of France and Italy signed the Munich Agreement. This deal forced Czechoslovakia to give Nazi Germany a large chunk of its territory, a chunk called the Sudetenland. The Czechs didn't want to give this land away. It included key Czechoslovak military defense positions, and they knew that it was vital for their survival as a nation. But along came the UK, led by Chamberlain, and also the leaders of France and Italy and Germany. And these men said, well, we're sorry, Czechs, but you have to give it away so that Hitler won't drag the whole continent into a war. So Czechoslovakia was forced to give the Sudetenland to Germany, and it was after forcing this deal on Czechoslovakia that Chamberlain returned to London and spoke to a jubilant crowd And he said the deal had secured peace. Peace in our time. That was the phrase he used. And that's what Chamberlain and the others thought that they were achieving by giving in to Hitler's pressure and appeasing him. But Winston Churchill knew it was false. Before becoming prime minister, he warned for years that these kinds of appeasements would not satisfy Hitler or secure peace. After hearing about the Munich peace deal, Churchill wrote, quote, The partition of Czechoslovakia under pressure from England and France amounts to the complete surrender of the Western democracies to the Nazi threat of force. It is not Czechoslovakia alone which is menaced, but also the freedom and the democracy of all nations. And then notice especially this segment here. Churchill said, The belief that security can be obtained by throwing a small state to the wolves is a fatal delusion. End quote. So that was Churchill responding to what he saw as suicidal foolishness from his predecessor and other European leaders. And of course, time proved Churchill's concerns right. Appeasement did not subdue Hitler, as Chamberlain had hoped. It did not secure peace in our time. In fact, it only emboldened Hitler and the Nazis. And Churchill spoke about this as a general principle of international relations, not just applicable to Nazi Germany, but really applicable to any aggressor nation. 
And history does show that to be a recurring theme. Aggressors are not appeased by weakness and capitulation, but are only emboldened to take more. That's something, of course, that's relevant to the geopolitical discourse right now in 2023, when many people are calling for a small state to be thrown to the wolves, and they argue that that would establish peace. It's a call that really echoes those of Chamberlain and the French leaders back in the 1930s. But it seems that few remember this history from the 1930s and 40s today. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has written extensively about this in his booklet, Winston S. Churchill, The Watchman. That's a booklet that remains deeply relevant, especially with aggressor nations being again on the march. In one part of this booklet, Mr. Flurry writes, Our big battle in foreign policy is not to give in to rock-hard tyrants, but that is routinely what we do. So Mr. Flurry there is broadening this beyond just what happened with Adolf Hitler, and he's bringing it into the present. And Mr. Flurry has also connected this history to our personal lives and our struggles against sin, selfishness, and all kinds of myopia. In his book, How to Be an Overcomer, He devotes space to the way Churchill was frustrated with Britain's defensive maneuvers before World War II under Chamberlain. Britain at this time was really just pacifying Germany and reacting. It was very much on the defensive. And Mr. Fleury calls attention to the way Churchill, after he became prime minister, helped the nation to instead go on the offensive. And then Mr. Fleury writes, this principle applies to Christians because the war on sin is the noblest war you will ever wage. You need to understand yourself, your own carnal nature, and then go on the offensive. Then a little further down, Mr. Flurry writes, we must think like people who are in a war. We are warriors. We are soldiers for Jesus Christ. How exciting and wonderful. Once again, that was from Mr. Gerald Flurry's book, How to Be an Overcomer. You can find a link to that and also to his booklet, Winston S. Churchill, The Watchman, in the show notes for today's episode of Trumpet Hour. Or you can just go to thetrumpet.com and order your copy of those books there. And you can also find the articles that today's reports were based on and the other books and booklets mentioned there as well. That's at thetrumpet.com. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and that brings us to the end of Trumpet Hour. You can email us any comments you may have about today's episode. The address is letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much to my guests, Mr. Richard Palmer and Mr. Josue Michels. Thanks also to Nicholas Irwin and Mr. Dwight Falk for taking care of the audio work for this episode. And I'll leave you with this thought from Winston Churchill. Everyone can recognize history after it has happened. But it is only the wise man who knows at the moment what is vital and permanent and what is lasting and memorable. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world.